Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name is Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Many people have prematurely announced the death of the neoliberal era in the past few decades. But global capitalism has experienced an unprecedented shock over the past two years as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. This came on top of the problems still left over from the crash of 2008 and the worsening climate crisis. Are we about to enter a new economic era? Our guest today for a conversation about global capitalism after the pandemic is Cédric Durand. He's a French economist who teaches at the University of Geneva and the author of Fictitious Capital, How Finance is Appropriating Our Future. In an article published last year, you argued that 2021 will be remembered as the moment when global capitalism was reorganised beyond neoliberalism, a tectonic shift that will irrevocably alter the terrain of political struggle. What was the reasoning behind that argument? There are several factors that are playing in that big shift in the regulation of capitalism. Of course, we are still in the sequence of the 2008 crisis. And in fact, the 2010s was a kind of a decade of hesitation, mismanagement, and poor uh, economic performance and social and political tensions all through the, the global north. And uh, for this reason, when the pandemic striked, it uh, accelerated changes that were already in the making. The most obvious element probably is the fact that after several decades where price stability was the main concern of uh, central bankers and uh, policymakers, full employment came to the fore as uh, the priority of government. And in this sense, what occurred in the U.S. with an explicitly... uh, uh, orientation in favor of high-pressure economy was symptomatic of this change of the configuration. So the question is why policymakers and government decided to shift away from this centrality of uh, low inflation, and in fact, which was a, a war on, uh, on labor, uh, which the con- main consequences was low wages for decades, why uh, such a change occurred? I will say that there are at least three factors, but maybe maybe more. Uh, the first factor is the fact that uh, the financial system is super highly leveraged now. And due to uh, this uh, super uh, high level of debt, there is a, a lot of risk of instability. And in particular, that means that for government, it's not possible anymore to rise uh, significantly interest rate. So if you cannot rise meaningfully interest rate, that means that you have no other choice than trying to accelerate your economy to produce some, some dynamism. So. In one sense, if you want, the option of attacking labor via austerity is more and more difficult to to, to advance. And also that occurred, of course, in the context of the longer stagnation tendencies, and there is a willingness from the part of government to overcome this tendency. The second factor is China. And I think that uh, uh, there was an interview by Brian Dees in the New York Times a few uh, months ago, and he said something that struck me. Uh, He said the following things. There is no market solution to the rise of China. And uh, international uh, tension, geopolitical tension, is a factor that is in favor of labor. Of course, this is, if you want, the 
the other side of the kind of rising nationalistic tension. If you have more nationalistic tension, you need to uh, government need to gather more consentment, internal consentment, and in this sense, being more open to uh, the, the uh, aspiration of labor could be uh, seen as a way to, to build this kind of consent. But that's also something more uh, direct in the sense that in order to build industrial capabilities uh, to be able to face the competition of China, uh, the US government needs to even more be involved in organizing businesses and uh, organizing technological uh, technological innovation. So in this sense, China is playing against neoliberalism in the sense that you cannot just say, let the market do the innovation. That was never completely the case in the US, of course, but at least there was this discourse. Uh, now you, 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 there is a need to be more, uh, more seriously involved in the organization of the economy. And maybe the third factor is the fact that with the ecological crisis now, there is a, a, a kind of new, um, new emphasis about the challenges of our time with uh, directly a great emphasis on issues of infrastructure, of structural change, some things that market is not good at, at making. So for these three reasons, if you want, on the one hand, high level of debt that prevents to go back to any forms of austerity and there is a so need to foster growth. Secondly, the rise of China and thirdly, uh, ecological crisis. There is a new landscape. And in this new landscape, the bargaining situation of labor is dramatically crude vis-a-vis the, the previous situation. So that doesn't mean, of course, that the U.S. government has turned anti-capitalistic in any meaningful sense, but that just means that they have structural constraints that uh, coerce them to try to figure out a way to find a new compromise. And in this situation, where a new social compromise is in the making, this is opening some uh, uh, strategical space for labor, I think. One of the key moments in the start of the neoliberal era came at the British Labour Party conference in 1976. The Labour Prime Minister, James Callaghan, brusquely announced the death of Keynesianism. The cosy world, which we were told would go on forever, where full employment would be guaranteed by a stroke of the Chancellor's pen, cutting taxes, deficit spending, that cosy world is gone. It was a Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, who appointed Paul Volcker as head of the Federal Reserve in 1979. But it was the governments of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher that presided over the heyday of monetarism in the early 1980s. When Paul Volcker drastically raised interest rates in the US, it led to mass unemployment. That in turn made it easier for politicians like Reagan to attack trade unions. In the following clip from 1981, Reagan announces that he'll be sacking air traffic controllers for going on strike. Let me make one thing plain. I respect the right of workers in the private sector to strike. Indeed, as president of my own union, I led the first strike ever called by that union. I guess I'm maybe the first one to ever hold this office who is a lifetime member of an AFL-CIO union. But we cannot compare labor management relations in the private sector with government. Government cannot close down the assembly line. It has to provide without interruption the protective services which are government's reason for being. It was in recognition of this that the Congress passed a law forbidding strikes by government employees against the public safety. It is for this reason 
that I must tell those who fail to report for duty th this morning. They are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. The closest British parallel came in 1984 when Thatcher engineered a confrontation with the miners' union. As in the US, sky-high interest rates and mass unemployment made it easier to defeat the strike. And just like Reagan, Thatcher claimed to have no problem with trade unions as such. Well, I think the unions are obviously one body where a fanatical, tiny fanatical minority can and seem to be able to take over a whole union and then say that they represent the whole union. As some of the tactics they use are to hold meetings at very short notice in places not advertised, and they somehow take over. You get the same thing sometimes in students' unions, uh, where those who are keenest on work can't go to meetings and stay on and on and on and on and on, and then find uh, that the vote isn't taken until there are only a few left, and those are the fanatics. This, I'm afraid, has become almost a standard tactic, both in Britain and in some other countries as well. And we must watch out for it, because they're not true representatives of the majority, and sometimes they deny the majority the right to speak, because they know they won't support the tiny minority. Now, you talk about the ruthless, manipulating few... Now, will you not negotiate with them ever? I will never negotiate with people who use coercion and violence to achieve their objective. They are the enemies of democracy. They are not interested in the future of democracy. They are trying to kill democracy for their own purposes. Thatcher showed us what she meant by democracy in 1999 when she emerged from retirement to campaign on behalf of Augusto Pinochet, the Chilean dictator whose economic policies had been an inspiration for Thatcher's government, was under house arrest in Britain. A Spanish judge wanted to put him on trial for crimes against humanity. Thatcher was furious. She spoke at the Conservative Party conference that year, where she celebrated Pinochet's destruction of the Chilean left and demanded his release. I don't know when or how this tragedy will end, but we will fight on for as long as it takes to see Senator Pinochet return safely to his own country. Chileans can rest assured that however contemptibly this Labour government behaves, the British people still believe in loyalty to their friends. In the early 90s, one of Thatcher's economic advisers, Alan Budd, spoke to Adam Curtis for his documentary series, Pandora's Box. Budd confessed his misgivings about the monetarist ideology. The nightmare I sometimes have about this whole experience runs as follows. Uh, I was involved in making a number of proposals which were partly at least adopted by the government and put in play by the government. Now, my worry is as follows, that there may have been people making the actual policy decisions or people behind them or people behind them who never believed for a moment that this was the correct way to bring down inflation. They did, however, see that it would be a very, very good way to raise unemployment. And raising unemployment was an extremely desirable way of, of reducing the strength of the working classes, if you like, that what was engineered there in Marxist terms was a crisis of capitalism which recreated the reserve army of labour and has allowed the capitalists to make high profits ever since. Now, again, I don't say I believe that story, but when I really worry about all this, I worry whether, indeed, that was really what was going on. 
How would you assess the economic policy agenda of the Biden administration so far? You know, I'm not based in the U.S., so I don't. I probably uh, many of uh, people uh, listening to this podcast know much more in detail the daily uh, intricacy and development of Biden policies. But from the other side of the Atlantic, what I could say is the following: the first thing is that we have this high-pressure economics, and we can see the consequences of that in terms of rising wages, lower on unemployment in the U.S., and also what has been called by some the, the general strike of labor in the U.S., but with a new assertiveness of labor and ability of labor to uh, refuse some uh, some kind of work or some, uh, some working conditions that are considered not to be acceptable. So in this sense, the most dramatic uh, movement by the Biden administration was probably his decision earlier this year to push forward with uh, public spendings in this direction. The second uh, thing that I think is very meaningful about Biden is a matter of ideology, of discourse, but it's also important. There has been, for example, some declarations in favor of unionization, some declarations in favor of uh, labor uh, wages increases, some uh, declarations in favor of expanding the welfare system. So even if it's not matched by a decision, and I know that the outcomes of uh, this agenda are pretty weak for the moment. In terms of general orientation, I think that it's meaningful and it set the tone for uh, for a new context uh, in the left, which is kind of interesting after decades of neoliberalism and Clintonite politics. And maybe the third element that we have to keep in mind is the fact that uh, it seems that in the U.S., and it's a big success of the left, after uh, years of organizing, of uh, mobilization, or political, and Jacobin played an important role into that, this finally had some impact. And due to the narrow situation in the U.S. Parliament, in the U.S. Congress, you have this necessity for the new administration to try to find a, a way to, to, to balance with uh, the left side of the, the Democratic Party. And this is a, a kind of victory. And I think that, of course, uh, much more needs to be done. But we need to underscore the success of the left in the past years and to observe the fact that this is uh, having some implications, some positive consequences, even if, of course, the situation now is not uh, satisfactory on, on many sides. So, yes, I would say these three elements, macroeconomic policy, ideological orientation, and weight of the left are the main uh, elements that allow to characterize this new administration as something really different from the Clinton era or the Obama era. What steps have the European Union and its national member states taken in response to the pandemic? And do you think those policies represent a clear break with the previous economic policy regime that was in place, especially during the Eurozone crisis? Uh, that's that's a very good question, because indeed, uh, you had on this side of the Atlantic too a very different uh, configuration now. The main difference is that there has been no immediate return to austerity policy. There is a beginning of this kind of discourse now, debt will be paid and so on. We are that, for example, in France or in Germany, and we can be afraid by the possibility of a rapid shift. But up till now, the mainstream political discourse was that acknowledging the fact that they made important errors uh, during the Eurozone crisis, 
and that they don't want to repeat this error. And that's the reason why there is a strong rebound of the economy in uh, in Europe now. Of course, it could be short-lived, but it's a very rapid uh, recuperation, which is meaningfully different than what occurred in 2010, for example. One important aspect, too, was the size of the socialization of the economy during this moment, especially in France that was completely unexpected from this so-called uh, self-defined uh, neoliberal as uh, Emmanuel Macron. We had a very high level of socialization of wages with uh, with schemes uh, according to which uh, wage laborers were receiving their income in spite of the activity being stopped. But that was not only uh, concerning wages. Profit and losses were also uh, socialized and up to last summer, there was the state was in fact stepping in to guarantee the income of uh, private corporations, uh, or through subventions, or through uh, guaranteed loans. But in fact, there was no risk of uh, failure for businesses. And the reality is that there has been almost no failure during this period. Something completely incredible that, in spite of the huge decrease of GDP last year, there was that was the year with uh, the smallest number of uh, business failures in recent history of France. So this is the main outcome of the public intervention during this period, massive intervention, both on the side of the wage uh, wage workers, uh, but also on the side of businesses, which allow to preserve the structure of the economy of uh, the past. The third element, of course, which is very interesting, is what occurred uh, at the financial level. The European Central Bank intervened massively, just as the Fed in the US, and it stepped in not only to buy uh, public debt, but also to buy private debt by uh, big uh, European corporations, which uh, allowed these uh, financial assets in general to increase dramatically during that period. Uh, March 2020 was probably the most surprising moment when you had this huge decrease due to the, the Greek lockdown of the economic activity, while you had a, already a strong rebound of market capitalization uh, in the global north. So the European Union reacted very differently than uh, a decade earlier. However, the main fault lines of the European Union are still here. They are still not resolved. There are still no agreement in terms of state making, in terms of unified level of taxation, in terms of fiscal policy at the European level. There has been some small steps in this direction, but uh, that's really not... Uh, very meaningful from a macroeconomic point of view. And this is due to the persistence of uh, huge disagreement uh, as far as the European Union is concerned. And we are seeing that very very much now with tension with Poland, for example, uh, concerning the place of EU law uh, vis-a-vis national uh, law. But that's not only the case of Poland. You have also debate about that in Germany, in France. So there is still no uh, clear path toward a true federal state uh, in Europe, which means that the the fault lines of the previous crisis are still here and uh, we cannot exclude uh, further uh, steps uh, of uh, European crisis in the uh, coming years. Since becoming Germany's Chancellor, Olaf Scholz has largely confined himself to platitudes about his country's relationship with Europe. Last May, however, Scholz expressed his hope that the pandemic recovery package would pave the way for a genuine fiscal union. It is the first time that we give a very strong common answer to fight a 
economic crisis in Europe, and I'm very proud that it was feasible the last year to develop the structure of such a recovery program and uh, to develop the European Union to that stage. It will make a difference. And even when the crisis is over, I think we will see that we have made a big step to a fiscal union which will be more strong to fight against crisis and to, to, to reach the future for all of us, to be successful in fighting against uh, climate the climate problem, but also for digitalization and modernizing Europe. After the crash of 2008, many commentators began referring to the work of Hyman Minsky on financialization and describing the financial crisis as a Minsky moment. What do you think are the strengths and also the limitations of Minsky's approach? I personally, I like very much Minsky. I think it's kind of very uh, smart work and uh, very impressive in terms of its ability to understand uh, in- inherent instability of uh, of capitalist and f- capitalist finance, especially. Basically, the idea of Minsky is the following one. At the beginning of any financial cycle, you have low uh, risk in the system because people are just able to repay their loans as their interest. But as soon as there is a, uh, an increase in confidence of uh, actors in uh, this, uh, on the stability of the situation, people are taking more risk up to the point where uh, they will not be able to pay back their debt and to pay back the interest. And then you will have a financial crisis. But the main point of Minsky is that this is a cycle, this cycle that I just described is not only about private actors that are taking more risk. It's also that regulators, public authorities are taking more and more risk along the way of the development of the financial cycle. And here you have a paradox that I think is very uh, interesting. The more instability in the system, the more uh, the state is intervening to contain that instability. And uh, the more the state is effective in containing instability, the more the system is building risk. And you can think about, uh, along these lines, the recent uh, history of capitalism. You had financial crisis in the 90s, mostly in developing countries. Uh, Then you have the dot-com crisis, then the big crash of 2008. And this time we had the, the corona crash, which of course was not directly the result of financial instability, but that occurred at a point where uh, there was a lot of worries about financial fragilities. And at all these points of vulnerabilities, central banks and governments stepped in to bail out banks, to stabilize markets, to uh, buy financial assets in order to ensure uh, global liquidity. And the problem is that as, as a result of that, we have a growing weight of financial assets vis-a-vis the real economy. And this mega bubble is building up, building up, building up with no end in sight. And here we are uh, arriving at uh, the limits of Minsky, I guess, because Minsky is not really uh, helping us to understand what is this about? What is this huge value of financial asset vis-a-vis the real economy meaning? And here I think that we can mobilize the concept uh, developed in particular by Suzanne de Brunoff. She was a a French Marxist specialist of of money and finance. And she stressed the fact that through the financial system and through the action of uh, public authorities in supporting the financial system, you had a process of pre-validation, ante-validation, if you want, of social labor. And in this sense, All this bubble and the public guarantee that we are observing today are just 
can be understood as a, a way for the state to guarantee the owner of financial assets that they will receive the incomes that they are expecting from their financial assets. The state is stepping in to guarantee them that the returns they are expecting for will arrive. However, this is becoming more and more difficult because you have a kind of disjunction between disvalorization in finance, the real dynamic of the economy. Now we are at this moment where we don't know how this anti-validation could be sustained for a longer time. And this is a problem that De Brunoff uh, considered thinking about the risk of pseudo-validation. The fact that uh, these financial assets could not bear the returns that they were supposed to, 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 to bring to their owners. So what can we say about this risk of pseudo-validation today? One option is uh, to have a financial crash. At some point, central banks and authorities decide that they cannot support anymore such high level of indebtedness in the global economy, that financial assets need to be uh, reduced, and they will allow some form of financial crash. I doubt that this will occur because it will unleash a huge wave of uh, instability in a society beyond the sole uh, financial markets. So that's the first option. The second option is, of course, a return of inflation. Inflation, uh, high level of inflation, and we are seeing now that we have higher level of inflation, could be a way to uh, deleverage the economy, reducing the weight of debt, private and public, vis-à-vis -vis the functioning of the economy through this effect of rising prices. And then you also have a third option, which will be the state to step in even more to guarantee the returns of financial owners. And that could be the paradigm of BlackRock, for example. BlackRock is an universal owner now. And what BlackRock wants is to be certain to get the returns of its assets, but in the meantime, is well aware of the limitation of its ability to generate returns in the medium to long term concerning the slow dynamic of, of the economy. Facing such challenges, BlackRock is calling for the state to intervene more. First, he's asking for uh, central banks to directly buy securities, including uh, shares of companies. But there is also another way for them to call uh, the state to step in, is to ask the state to guarantee some forms of returns through private-public partnership. And in this manner, such financiers as BlackRock wants to be directly connected to infrastructure and to be able to receive a regular fees from this infrastructure or be able to invest in the global south, for example, in a so-called green investment. But as the returns on this investment are not safe, they want the state to guarantee them this level of return. And Daniela Gabor has made a very uh, terrific job about that, explaining this dynamic of what she called the Wall Street consensus, where uh, the state is just uh, guaranteeing private returns to overaccumulated uh, financial capital. We've kind of gotten used to BlackRock beating the numbers, beating expectations. In the following interview at CNBC from last October, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink gives a sense of the company's economic reach. Are you closing in on $10 trillion? No, Becky. I mean, obviously, we had declines in the equity markets, so, uh, and we also had um, um, a rising dollars. So our assets were basically flattish uh, for the for the quarter. You know, we're approximately about nine and a half trillion. We did see ninety eight billion dollars of net inflows and in long term assets from our clients. 
which is pretty significant. Towards the end of the interview, Fink appeared to have an inkling of burgeoning discontent among American workers in the wake of the pandemic, although he linked it to the gig economy rather than class struggle. Uh, I think what is transforming our world, and this is that transition that I'm talking about, I think we, we underestimate the power of the gig economy. I think we underestimate what COVID has done to so many uh, people around the world in terms of trying to navigate the work-family balance. And the gig economy, in many cases, is a lot more accommodative. I also believe so many companies who are dependent on part-time workers, not paying them um, health care benefits or retirement benefits, there are alternatives to those jobs now. What has changed in the role of finance and its relationship to state power since the Great Recession began in 2008? Well, since 2008, the financial sector has been dependent upon state support and financial assets have been persistently inflated by pro-corporate fiscal and monetary policies. So under this regime, in fact, finance is dependent upon the state rather than the contrary. And that was not the situation before the financial crisis. Before the financial crisis, states used to be terrified by the prospect of market liquidity drying. However, now the configuration the configuration is completely reversed. The financial community is on a permanent a public lifeline to ensure liquidity, smooth market clearing, and the provision of assets. So in this sense, you had a reversal of the relationship of power between finance and the state due to the role of the state in supporting finance after the financial crisis up till uh, right now, in fact. The concept of long ways of capitalist development is one that's attracted a lot of attention from radical economists like Ernest Mondel, but also from more mainstream figures like Carlotta Perez or Mariana Mazzucato. I want to ask you, first of all, do you find that concept useful and helpful for your own work? And if so, how do you think it applies to the recent history of capitalism? Yeah, I think this is a very useful concept because it tells you something about the dynamic of capitalism. Dynamic of capitalism is nothing like equilibrium. It's precisely a dynamic. A dynamic that is also not linear. It's not even. It's not stable. It goes up and down. And these up and downs are the result, of course, of investment behavior, of behavior of capitalists. But this behavior is embedded in technological opportunities and institutional settings, if you want. And the theory of long waves is exactly based on that. It looks at the opportunity opened by technologies and uh, institutional settings and the way that capital can take advantage of that to, to invest. But at a certain point, this configuration is exhausted. And once the configuration is exhausted, you have a loss of opportunity, you have a loss of dynamism of the system. And the key point, according to Ernest Mandel, is that there is no automatic return to a phase of, the, of this long wave. And in fact, somebody like uh, Carlota Perez also agree with Mandela in spite of not uh, quoting him on, on this point, because she explained that in order to feel uh, a new expansionary wave, what you need is adequate policies to the technological opportunities in order to offer proper opportunities of investment for, for, for capitalists. 
So I think this framework is, in very broad, very general terms, very relevant in order to try to figure out the various stages or the various epochs of capitalism, if you want. In 2019, Carlotta Perez delivered a lecture at UCL in London, where she outlined her theory of technology and the history of capitalism. The first observation, important observation I want to make, is that technological advance is constant, but it's not continuous. We normally think of technology as this thing that progresses. You know, it's progress. So you have it going on and on and on. That's not really wrong, but it's not exactly right either. In fact, the way technical change progresses is by successive surges of transformation, global big technological revolutions that come across the economy until they exhaust themselves. And once they are exhausted, the next one starts taking shape. And then there is another big wave of technological change, a technological revolution. And each of these big surges of transformation opens different potential directions for growth. Perez identified five technological revolutions that have unfolded since the late 18th century. So we are now in our current revolution. From the microprocessor in 1971, we can say that the age of information technology and telecommunications began. But that arrow is only halfway. And that's one of the things I want to tell you today. Every revolution has two periods, and we are precisely midway along the process of diffusion of this particular revolution. So I have good news for you. You still have a big way ahead to transform the world with this revolution. And the next one, what could the next one be? Well, we don't know. But one thing we know, it is that the next revolution never begins out of nowhere. There is always technologies in gestation, which are sort of the frontline technologies, and they are the most likely to make the breakthroughs that will make the next revolution when this one has given all it can. One of the things that happens with revolutions is that because they create conditions for investment and innovation along certain uh, sort of common sense directions, everybody sort of continues along that way rather than wait for a completely new revolution for which nothing is ready. The other thing that I, I think is also very relevant, but missing, in fact, in this framework, is the fact that it doesn't uh, immediately take into account the fact that capitalism is aging, it's be, is becoming old. By that, what I mean? I mean that the social and natural geographical space available for capital accumulation is, in fact, exhausted in the sense that Capitalism is truly global nowadays, but also capital is aging in the sense that all the previous contradictions are building up in the systems. And in this sense, when you use a framework of long wave to use it relevantly, I think means that you do not forget the fact that there is also this uh, old uh, aging dynamics uh, going on, which goes hand in hand with a form of loss of, of dynamism, I guess. Concerning the current situation, to what extent do we have 
an opportunity to relaunch a long wave. In fact, people uh, like Carlota Perez are, are waiting for a long time to, to have this phase of deployment of the opportunities opened up by the new uh, uh, information technologies and biotech and so on. However, in their view, there is a, a bright prospect room for a compromise, if you want, between social groups in order to allow for this uh, expansionary phase to occur. Of course, this is not really the case in the sense that there is no uh, easy way to go into that direction. And in particular, what they do not take into account is a big loss of relative bargaining power of labor during the previous period that, of course, foreclose uh, the easiness to build a compromise in the new situation. So that that will be uh, one of the of the limitations. The other limitation is that you have a huge amount of overaccumulated capital uh, due to financialization, due to overinvestment in manufacturing core uh, activities globally, and this is not uh, uh, something that is easily resolved, even with some adequate institutions to relaunch a phase of expansion of capitalism. However, I will stress the fact that the relative success, in spite of its weaknesses, of Chinese uh, capitalism, state capitalism in the past decades, is an argument in favor of this idea that with some uh, specific institutional settings, you can, for at least some time, constrain, control the main contradiction of the process of capital accumulation. To what extent China will be able to to uh, propel further this dynamism, it's not clear. Of course, uh, everybody is uh, well aware of the weaknesses of uh, the systems. In particular, the housing sector is concerned, the financial sector is concerned. However, there are some specificities of the the Chinese uh, form of capitalism that for other countries, in fact, propose an alternative to the neoliberal management of capitalism. And in this sense, could offer a path further expansion of capitalism, although I would not bet a lot on this uh, possibility. Well, that point about China brings on the next question I want to ask, which is, what do you think is distinctive about the Chinese form of capitalism as it's taken shape over the last few decades since the initial reforms of the late 1970s? And what kind of challenge does it now pose to the traditional centres of advanced capitalism in Europe and North America and Japan? Well, I, I'm not a specialist on China, and so my my view is not specifically informed, but I, I am stricken by three elements. The first element is that the Chinese and their strategy is very well rooted in the inadequate theory of uneven development dynamics. And the fact that China was suffering from uneven development and they deployed a strategy of catch-up in the sense that uh, they were aware of their uh, late-coming advantages, late-comer advantages that allow them to to skip some stages and to uh, catch up very rapidly, uh, to leapfrog, if you want, very rapidly, vis-à-vis more uh, developed economies. From an institutional point of view, two elements are decisive. One, in fact, is that the Chinese leadership seems to be seriously uh, taking uh, seriously into account uh, Leninist uh, theory of the NEP, of the new economic policy. In fact, they are using this key concept of the NEP, which is the strategic hate of the economy. And the state did not uh, lost uh, control of this strategic hate of the economy 
all along the reform period. And you have a public control of the banking sector, of most of the telecommunication sectors, railway sectors, construction sector, and so on. So you have a very strong involvement of the state at the level of the core sectors of the economy. And this is, of course, a crucial element if you want to uh, understand how uh, the Chinese leadership is able to deal with capitalist contradiction and to uh, maintain also difficultly some uh, growth uh, pattern for uh, such a long period. The third element is that uh, there is also something more specific about the advantage of planning and the use of uh, the party uh, bureaucracy. In China, you still have a, a planning bureaucracy. And this planning bureaucracy is, in fact, playing a role at two levels. The first level is that it's, it allows some kind of convergences of anticipations by leaders, both political leaders, management, management uh, and business leaders, toward a possible growth pathway, which, of course, helps to make decisions. It, it is a way to reduce uncertainty, if you want. But there is also something else. Due to the persistence of a very harsh political regime on the manager of uh, the party, uh, you have, uh, in fact, uh, a way to react very rapidly to uh, uh, the de political decision-making of the leadership. I, I will try to be more concrete. If you want to be a successful leader in China, not only on the one hand, you must succeed as an economic manager, so your department should be profitable uh, and so on. You, you, you should success on market terms. But in the meantime, you should be able to propose your own interpretation of what are the party leadership orientations and to deploy them and, in fact, to propose them to the other member of the party in other enterprises and so on. And these two channels of legitimacy and the interplay between both give to the China uh, government a much wider richness than what we have in, in, in Western economies. And in this sense, we need to better understand what's going on uh, at this level of China. But for sure, there is something specific into, uh, into this social formation. And uh, these specificities are explaining uh, this exceptional success from the capital accumulation perspective. Prices rising across the board, including gas prices up 58 percent. After a long period when inflation almost seemed to have vanished as a political concern, anxiety about rising prices has recently been dominating the economic news agenda from the U.S. to Germany and Britain. I feel like there's never enough money. Christy Brown, a teacher and single mom, telling us she's struggling to pay higher rent, plus $150 more a month for groceries, buy winter clothes for her kids, and now they need a new From car. From energy and food to paper and rent, prices have been rising in Germany and across Europe. The latest data puts inflation in Europe's biggest economy at 5% year-on-year, the highest in 30 prices years. Prices were 4.2% higher in October compared with the year before. Inflation is now at levels not seen since 2011, with a steep rise in gas and electricity bills the biggest factor as a global surge in demand drives up energy prices. The cost of second-hand cars has soared too, up more than a quarter since April, and putting petrol in that car is also much more expensive than just... How far do you think the current panic about inflation is justified? And how do the inflationary pressures of today differ from the experience of the 1970s? Concerning the prospect of inflation, 
I will be rather cautious. On the one hand, I think that a lot of that is linked to the immediate aftermath of the pandemic. And so in this perspective, it should be resolved rather sooner than later. However, you need to keep in mind that you have more structural aspects. One is just the fact that anticipation about inflation are building up exactly right now. And as they are building up, they are building the possibility of further inflation. The second element is that you have some factors, in particular the cost of the ecological transition that could push further up prices of several key commodities uh, that could spill over the whole economic system. So that's so there are some possibilities, if you want, of a buildup of inflation. But I think the most interesting part of your question is what's going on socially and to what extent is it different from the 1970s. And I think that here we, we, we need to take into account the fact that uh, inflation surge is right now mostly driven by business taking advantage of LC condition on the demand side. And this is completely different from uh, what occurred in the 70s. In the 70s, there was a cost shock that was propelled by the rise of oil, but this was propelled further up by wage price inflation spiral. Because at that time, the labor movement was strong and he was able to bargain for for, uh, wage rises. This is not very much the case right now. In spite of some increase in wages that we are seeing, the strong actor right now, of course, is businesses. And what we are seeing this time is, in fact, the perspective of a profit price inflation. What I mean by that? I mean that, in fact, businesses are taking advantage of some bottlenecks and of very strong demand to rise their prices and rise their margin in the meantime. But as they are rising their margin, they are diffusing, spilling over this inflation pressure. And so this is very important. This diagnostic is very important because if you take that seriously, that means that governments need to discipline business if a government is serious about his willingness to, to limit uh, inflation pressure. And this point, in fact, has been very well argued by Isabella Weber on several occasions recently. And I think that the idea of price control, if correctly defined on specific points, should be a way, a correct way to reduce inflation pressure. And for sure, that's a better way to do than to increase interest rate or to turn to fiscal austerity, which would uh, have uh, very serious uh, negative consequences for employment and labour conditions. If we are beginning to see a tectonic shift in the nature of global capitalism, what implications does that have for class struggle and mobilisation by workers after a generation of retreat? Excellent, excellent implications. I think that the prospect is much better right now for the labor movement than it was in the past three decades. In the past three decades, we had a political defeat with the fall of the Soviet Union and the opening of the whole developing world uh, to uh, global markets, to with the conversion of China to uh, globalization. All these forces are on, the, on retreat on the one hand. On the other hand, you do not have the autonomy of finance that we used to have. Finance now is, as we said a, a moment earlier, completely dependent on the state. And so politically, it's, it cannot be as assertive as it used to be. And finally, and that's of course very important, we are beginning to see, but that's just the beginning, of a reduction of the labor army at the global scale. And this diminishing pressure of unemployment also should be helpful on the side of labor 
to help to organize and to uh, rebuild uh, confidence in the validity and possibility of collective struggles. So the general structural constraints in this sense are improving. And that's what I mean by what I, when I am talking about excellent. What is not that excellent, of course, is that more subjectively, politically, the articulation of an alternative to capitalism is still very weak. And there is a, a huge ideological work to, to be done to rebuild a, such a project in order to offer the strengthening la- labor movement some longer term prospect than just important but politically limited gains on the sole economic struggle vis-a-vis capital. Many thanks to Cédric Durand for that analysis of the big economic questions facing us today. If you want to know more about his ideas, I strongly recommend his book Fictitious Capital, which is available from Verso. 